as you know, the Tanya revolves around the definitions of the terms Tzadik Ben Nirosha. Righteous, average, and Rosha. Sinner, evil one. And the Tanya, of course, begins with the classic definitions of those terms, Tzadik Ben Nirosha, and defines the three based on actions alone. Tzadik means more than 50% good deed is righteous. Rosha means more than 50% Evil deeds is evil, and Benyani is approximately half and half is average. Why? Because that's how we're judged. If the majority of our actions are good, we're called a tzaddik. If the majority of our actions are evil, we're called a rasha, and so forth. The Tanya is not giving us a classic definition. It's giving us a mystical definition, a Kabbalistic definition rooted in a Zayar and Pashas Mishpatim. To be sure, when the Tanya begins... The Al-Tarebbe actually finds a Gemara, a Nigla, a Talmud, to support the mystical position. The Gemara Masech Tebrachas, that defines Tzadik Ben Nirasha according to the mystical uh, interpretation. And we have a whole new set of definitions. Because Tzadik Ben Nirasha in the mystical framework are not simply defined by how one is judged, but they're actually definitions of characters, categories. Tzaddik means a righteous person. It doesn't mean a person who's vindicated in a courtroom. A righteous person. And a Bainini means an average person. And a Rasha means a person who's weak, who's not righteous. And the Al-Tarebbe gives us completely different definitions, which are very, very, very extreme, very strong, based on Zayat. And the entire book of Tanya is meant to enlighten these three categories. And most importantly, to teach us how it's possible to be Benyani. That's the whole message of the Tanya. Tzadikim is not the concern of the Tanya. It's a different book that was written and burned. We don't have it. The book of the Tanya is meant to teach us what Tzadik, Benyani, Rosha are and to teach us how one can be a Benyani. Practically. My rabbi says, I can't be a Benyani. No one can be a Benyani. He's probably practically right. (laughs) (laughs) Halavai Benyani. Learn the beginning of chapter 14, Tanya Perikidal. It says, take your life one minute at a time. Try to be a Benyani in five minute increments. That's a very practical way to do it. Because in the Tanya's world, in the mystical world, Tzaddik is someone who doesn't, not only doesn't sin, but he has no tendency to sin. There's no desire to sin. Because in quote, he's killed his Yetzirah, either in part or in whole, as you'll see Mitzvah next time. A Rasha doesn't mean a bad person. Rasha means a person who's, who's lost even one battle with the Yetzirah. One sin makes a person a Rasha because Rasha doesn't mean evil. Rasha means weak. Benini is a person who could sin and never does. Which is why your rabbi said you can't be a Benini. And it's quite reasonable. Maybe discouraging, but true. Logical. Reasonable. So when you read these definitions, it's a whole new set of terms which essentially puts us all in what I like to call the Balchuva category, because we're certainly not Tzaddik, and we're probably not Benyani, and we don't like the word Rasha, so we use the word Balchuva, which means we're constantly having to fix the wrongs that we're doing, because it's a very, very strong set of definitions. What's significant about these, these definitions is that they're absolute, they're clinical, they're not equivocal, they're not relative, they're real. Tzaddik means a righteous person, not a person who does righteous things, a righteous person, I means there's no tendency towards sin. Rasha means a weak person, person who's given in, doesn't matter how frequently. 
And a Benyan means a person who's not righteous, but he's not weak either, hasn't given in. So this foundation is the point of the Tanya, but in order for the Alter Rebbe to be able to practically explain these categories of human beings, he gives us an extensive introduction. The extensive introduction has been what we focused on for the last five classes. The introduction is to categorize every human being, the Tzaddik and the Rasha, as having not one but two souls. The godly soul and the animal soul. And we spent enormous amount of time. We devoted two classes to the godly soul, then two classes to the animal soul, and then one more class to the combination. That was last week, two weeks ago. We categorized the godly soul as Pnimi, as connected. And the animal soul as Tivi, as natural. This is, the, so to speak, the essence of each of the two souls as we discussed them in our series of classes. We also linked the godly soul and the animal soul to Ma and Ban. Ma, 45, Ban, 52, is Adam of Ahim, a man and animal. And we talked about the difference between the two souls in the last few classes in a, in a philosophical way and made the point that the godly soul is defined by its humanness. And humanness means detail and order. The animal soul is defined by its intensity, by its power, by its infinity. And not by its detail, and not by its order. Or as I discussed with you last week, if you could remember, Kabbalah says that infinity is actually considered immature. Infinity, limitation, is considered sophisticated and developed. Because when something is infinite... It has no distinguishable parts. It's like raw power. That's the animal soul. The godly soul functions in a human-like way. Complex, detailed, involved, intricate. But there's more infinity in the infinity of man than there is infinity in the infinity of animal. Because the infinity is in the order. As we discussed at length last week. So the point that we're holding at at this moment is after all the classes we've had, this is class number 10 in this cycle. What we've learned is that there's a, 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 a godly and an animal soul and they're different in every imaginable way. Uh, the godly soul is deep, the godly soul is thorough, the godly soul is detailed, the godly soul is soft. The animal soul is passionate and intense and extreme and uh, like a wave, like a force. So they're very, very different. Yet, the form of the two souls are identical. In other words, the essence of the two souls, the, the energy, the, the drive of the two souls is very different, but the appearance is identical. They're both defined by having a mind and a heart and garments. The animal soul has intelligence, the godly soul has passion, has emotion, and of course they both have the ability to express themselves in the garments of thought, speech, and deed as we discussed. Tonight we do chapter 9, which is, in my humble opinion, one of the most important, one of the most exciting chapters in the Pedic, in Tanya. This chapter, I call it war, W-A-R in capital letters with an exclamation point. Because it's in this chapter that Altareba describes the actual lacking of horns, the battle. In other words, starting from the end of chapter 1, and then chapter 2, and 3, and 4, and 5, and 6, and 7, and 8, the Altarebbe talked about the godly soul and the animal soul separately. 
two, three, four, and five was what the godly soul is and what the godly soul does. The end of one, and then six, seven, and eight describe what the animal soul is and what the animal soul does. And we allot ourselves five weeks for that handful of chapters, although some would say we spent more time than we needed to. It was fine. But now we discuss not the godly soul and not the animal soul, but the confrontation, the war. Because the godly soul and the animal soul cannot avoid each other. Because they occupy the same space. The person. The human being. And of course the marshal, the analog that illustrates it is there's a city. And the city has two strong houses. In one strong house you have one authority, one power. Another strong house you have another authority, another power. And each one is not satisfied to remain in its strong house. He wants to conquer the city. But in order to conquer the city, they have to expel, they have to overthrow, they have to displace their opponent, their counterpart. The city is the human being, the arms and the legs, the body, the function, the purpose, the activities, and the psyche, the spirit, the neshama of the person. And the godly soul, the animal soul, each have their own strong houses and they're in combat. What are the strong houses of the godly soul and the animal soul respectively? And the answer, of course, is the godly soul is in the mind and the animal soul is in the heart. The godly soul's intellectual center spills over into the heart. The animal soul's emotional center influences the mind. Each one is a whole one. The godly soul wants to affect the emotions. The animal soul wants to govern the mind as well. But the center of the divine soul is in the brain the center of the animal souls in the heart. And from their respective places, the godly soul wants to sweep across the city and eradicate, oust the animal from the heart. And the animal soul wants to sweep across the city and take over the whole person and oust the godly soul. But there's a key ingredient that you have to understand about this war between the divine soul and the animal soul, which really could be called the human soul and the animal soul, the sophist- the Adam and the behema, as it were, uh, in this encounter, in this uh, conflict. And that is that in the spiritual battle between the godly and the animal within a person, there is no united nations. And there's no appeasement, there's no ceasefires, and there's no settlements, there's no negotiated settlements. There's unconditional surrender period. You understand? This, these two souls are at it. And they mean business. The godly soul is not going to say to the animal soul, I'll give you 25%. The animal soul is not going to say to the godly soul, I'll give you 15 minutes a day. That's not the way it works. This is a word of the death. The godly soul wants to conquer all, and the animal soul wants to conquer all. Why? They're not enlightened. The 19th century... Uh... <laughs> What do they call it in those days? Um, chivalry. They're chivalrous. You know? It's all about pride and honor and nonsense like that. They're not enlightened and into appeasement and peace and compromise. In the, in the world of the human being, each soul wants complete conquest. Anything less than that is completely unacceptable. Uh, uh, this is a war. It's the war of life. It's the only war of life that matters to us and the only war of life we have a say in, and the only war of life we should really be fighting. But of course, like most people, we find other things to fix, because it's easier to fix things we cannot fix than to fix the one thing we actually could and must fix, 
because it's too personal. <laughs> and that's life. So the Alter Rebbe proceeds to describe, Alter Rebbe proceeds to describe this, this, this war. We've set the stage, right? We, we know about the godly soul. We know about the animal soul. We know about the city. We're one person. We, we can't be split. We can't be split. We're one person. And because we're one person, and because we cannot split, someone has to win and someone has to lose. The mind, the, the godly soul's stronghouse, the godly soul's place of center is the brain. The animal soul's stronghouse and place of center is the heart. And from those two respective sources, each one wishes to dominate the entire person. But their techniques are quite different. The godly soul's beginning is the mind, the brain. And the entire priority of the godly soul is to educate the body. I used the word educate. I didn't mean control. There are times when the godly, the mind has to control the heart, control the person. But the true will of the divine soul is not simply to control the body, which is kind of difficult to do, but to educate. That what the brain knows, the body should be. There's a great story which I've shared with you in this cycle of Tanya already once. There were three Hasidim sitting in a Fabrengen. Who were all Hasidim of the Alder Rebbe. But they were probably separated by 40 or 50 years in age. And in terms of levels, they were light years apart. The oldest Hasid was a man by the name of Rabbi Zalman Zezmer. Zalman Zezmer was intelligent, the way it's described in Hasidus, like Shleim HaMelech was. They used the same language to describe his intellect like using Hasidus to describe the intelligence of King Solomon. Whatever that means, he was a very smart guy. The younger Hasid was a Pesach Malastov. He was probably 40 years his junior. And between the two was a Isaac Hamlet, who was probably 10 or 15 years younger than Abdalman and an equal number of years older than the Pesach. And it was a strange Fabrengen. It's, it's, it's actually three Hasidim of the same Rebbe, but they really were three generations. Because the Rebbe was a Rebbe for a long time. And the beginning to the end was incredibly disparate. So the middle Hasid, of Isaac Hamlet sitting there, thinking to himself, Here's this little young guy, this, this sage, this infinite mind. Rav Zalman Zezma was such an intelligent man, he was a deep intellectual, that even though he was a chassid, in other words, he actually served God, he didn't just study and do mitzvah, he was full of energy towards the Ebishter, you saw no emotion on him. His brain so dominated his psyche, his personality, his identity, you saw no you didn't see him get excited. The brain was just so strong that the emotions never spilled out of him. The young Chassid was nowhere in his league. But he was disturbed by his lack of demonstration of emotion. Chol Chassid is his passion. So the young Chassid says to the old Chassid, I give you a blessing that your heart should feel what your brain understands. As thy heart will feel and what thy kopa He was a brilliant intellectual. You should feel in your heart what your brain understands. Now the Chassid in the middle, the referee here, is thinking to himself, what a nerve. <laughs> Who does he think he is? You know, it's like a little kid telling the Lubavitcher Rebbe to tie his shoes. You know, that kind of thing. I mean, they were not in the same world. And this young chassid says, old chassid, I'll give you a blessing. Your heart should feel what your brain understands. But the young chassid was not a chutzpanik. He wasn't doing it because he wanted to look good. He was doing it because he felt it was the right thing to say. 
And he did it with concern. He did it for the right reasons. He wasn't just trying to use another person's weakness to raise himself. He actually, he actually said what he felt needed to be said. So Rabbi Isaac Homeland is sitting there and he watches his young chassid speak to this senior chassid and really overstep his bounds and tell him, I bless you that your heart should feel what your brain understands. He says, and two things impressed me. The first thing I was impressed was by the mesidas nefesh of the young chassid. Because I realized that this young chassid didn't say it because he was being smart. He was young saying it because he felt it had to be said. So for him to say it was a mesidas nefesh. Why? When you tell somebody something, because it needs to be said, but you're the wrong person to say it, it's a mesidas nefesh. And the old chassid made as a The old, the senior chassid, the sage, accepted it from him. He wasn't insulted and he didn't become offended. He says he appreciated it, he took it. So the young chassid's mesidas nefesh and the old chassid's midas emes left their mark on me, says the Baizikoma. This is what the mind wants. The mind wants that what it understands about the Abishur should spill over into the whole other person. Okay? Now here's how the mind operates. Here's how the mind operates. The mind has to think things through. Right? Even the godly soul. You know what the word godly means. Godly means to the Abishur. But the godliness of the godly soul is the subconscious of the godly soul. In other words, the, your own godliness is hidden from you. The consciousness of the godly soul is, is, is ideas, is reason. So the godly soul is completely engrossed, immersed in trying to understand. To understand Hashem. Some a little more, some a little less. And the godly soul wishes that what it understands in, its, in his brain, the heart should feel. And the way it works, says the Alter Rebbe, is that there's steps. Understanding has stages. The first two stages are what we call Chochma and Bino. The first two stages are what we call Chochma and Bino. Right? What's Chochma and what's Bino? We talked about this in chapter 3. Chochma is the creative mind. The intuitive mind. The aspect of the brain which can come up with new ways of understanding things, or actually new understandings, new insights. So when a person is studying God, how do you study God? How do you study God? Huh? With a microscope? Huh? With an electron microscope? How do you study God? You can't. You study His world. And you extrapolate. The world tells you about the Creator. You want to know God? Look at His world. So the godly soul studies God based on what He observes in the world. And there's many steps you look at the world and you see the beauty and you see the order and eventually you get smart enough to appreciate the idea of yesh mayayin that once this world was not and now it exists and God created ex nihilo and the moment you enter the ex nihilo realm you have a new idea called constant creation and using the world as a springboard you can learn an enormous amount about Hashem so the Chochmah is the creative mind that tries to come up with the intuitive ideas about Hashem and Bina is a thorough mind that analyzes them to see if they're true. You know, not every time you come up with a good idea does it hold water. When you have a new idea, you have to think it through, you have to experiment with it. Sometimes it, it, it proves itself to be realistic, and sometimes it breaks down, it's not sufficient. So Chachma and Bina are the two tools that God gave us, one is the creative tool, and one is the experimental, the thorough tool. So a person who's studying God thinks about it. 
He doesn't just think about it to understand it. He thinks about it after he's understood it. Because he wishes that what his brain understands, his heart should feel. And in order for the heart to feel what the brain understands, there's an exercise called his bonanus, or his bonanut, which is at the core of the traditional Chabad model of Avodah Hashem. It's about affecting that what you understand in your brain, you can make your heart feel by rethinking it again and again and again. Focusing on the ideas that you've understood about Hashem last week, last month, last year, and you're thinking them over. Not to add to your intellectual understanding, but to affect that what you understand intellectually should spill over into your heart. That what your brain understands, your heart should feel. By focusing on God, you're hoping that it won't just remain an intellectual idea, it'll actually affect your heart. And then what happens when it affects your heart? You get excited. And then? You do something. Because we're not governed by our minds. We're governed by our hearts. Practically speaking, we live by our heart and don't live by our mind. This exercise, this process, which we're going to be talking about again later in Mitzvah chapter 12, is what's called in the Zoya Mayach Shalat The mind rules over the heart. But there's actually two concepts. One is Mayach Moylech Alalev, one king over the heart. And the other is Mayach Shalat. The mind dictates, governs, and controls the heart. The difference between the two is mayach mayleichal, the king, the mind rule kings over the heart, is true when you're actually trying to educate your heart. When you're focusing in on the ideas of Hashem that you've studied and understood for the express purpose of arousing emotions in your heart. Mayach shalatalev is when you're not thinking about God. You thought about Him this morning. Now you're driving a truck or you're sitting on a bus. So you're not so tuned in. So you can't educate the heart. You just want to control it. So the process we're describing in chapter 9 is really the mind wishing to king over the heart, to get the heart to feel, to get the heart to agree with what the brain understands. Now remember, the heart's the seat of the animal soul. So this is a funny fix. It's a funny event. The brain is trying to invade, to go into the space of the heart, and the heart is the, is the realm of the animal soul. As I explained it to you before, the brain is defined by thoroughness and detail and order and subtlety and nuance. And the heart is defined by sheer force, sheer power. <coughs> this is what it is. You use your chokhmah to be intuitive, you use your bina to be thorough. So there are a couple of interesting details that are incredibly important. The first and probably the most important is a tricky phenomenon called das. Das is a third intellectual tool that actually changes intellect not at all. Chochmah is the creative mind. Bina is the thorough mind. Chochmah is the part of my brain that comes up with new ideas. Bina is the part of my brain that tests those new ideas and either decides that they're true and preserves them and develops them further or decides that they're false and disposes of them. Das adds nothing to the intellect except one thing. Das personalizes things. The moyacha das, the tool of das, which biologically is the back of the brain. Chochmah is on the right side and the front, Bina is on the left side and the front, and Das is in the back. It's about Hergish. That means to say that the concepts I understand matter to me. You know, the old story, we talked about this many times, about this peasant who couldn't read and write, who hires a tutor to teach his children Torah, and one day the peasant gets a letter that his father died. But he can't read. 
So he comes to the Malambit and says, can you please read me and translate this letter for me? He says, yeah, I'm sorry to inform you that your father, Chaim Chvesfos, Shloimer ben Yecheskel died. So the peasant faints, passes out, his father died. So when they revive him, the Malambit says, I don't understand, I read the letter. How come you fainted? You only heard my translation. I read the original. So I'm one step closer to the event than you are. How come you fainted and I didn't? So the peasant says, because he's my father. That's not about understanding. That's about connection. Das is a third intellectual tool that from a strictly intellectual point changes nothing. It just means that what I understand matters to me. Das is translated as connection. His kashness. Or herish, feel. The way I learn a concept, you know, you can have people who are brilliant and they're little babies. Geniuses, they're little babies. Because they have no das, they have no depth. You can have people who are intellectually quite simple and they're incredibly mature because they have much das. Das, I translate das as maturity, as depth, as integrity. And it's a separate intellectual tool. There's an intellectual tool that allows you to create ideas, an intellectual tool that allows you to study ideas, an intellectual tool that allows you to personalize ideas. And one of the most difficult and frustrating steps in this process of the godly soul's wish to invade and conquer the whole city, beginning with the heart, is that you're not allowed to skip Das. Because if you skip Das, you're in La La Land, you're in Dreamland. If you study God using the creativity of Chochmah and the thoroughness of Vina and don't use Das, your emotions have no power. You can't fight with the Yetzir Hoda. You know why? Because God is not real. Can you For, give us a concrete idea of where you would have a new idea and then it would lead you to test it and then you would personalize it? I don't want to go through the three steps because it'll take too long. We talked about it in chapter three. I'll be happy to give you the tape. But I will give you an insight. Okay? The Gemara says in Berachas, Abiyech and Mazaka was laying on his deathbed, surrounded by his students, Abiyech and Mazaka. And the students say to their holy master, Rebbe, give us a blessing. So he says to them, I'll give you a blessing, you should fear God like you fear man. In Tanya chapter 41, the Al-Trebbe talks about two levels of fear. The lower level of fear is fearing God like you fear man. And the higher level of fear is fearing God like you fear a king. And he calls it two mitzvahs. Yira and Avoida. We'll get to the details. Chapter 41 will be 41 classes from now, or whatever it is. We'll get to it. So when Abiyachim Mazaki tells his students, I bless you to fear God like you fear men, they were insulted. He says, that's all. He says, that's all, halavai. Fearing God is an incredibly real thing. Because we don't see us. He never insults us. He doesn't put a gossip in the paper. He knows and we know. You understand? There's a famous story with a reformed rabbi who goes to the golf course on the way to the shul in Kippur in the morning and he and he scores a, a perfect score. And the angels say, God, they don't understand. The man is sitting on Yom Kippur. How do you give him a perfect score? God says, who's he going to tell? <laughs> this is punishment. Das affects 
that the concepts of Hashem are real. Judaism says that until 13 years old, you're part of more mitzvahs. There are people in history who are 10, 11 years old who knew the whole Torah. They had no chiv to do mitzvahs. A person of 20 years old who doesn't know how to read has to do all the mitzvahs. He's not nearly as intelligent because the obligation to do mitzvahs is not defined by how intelligent you are, but how much maturity you have. The maturity is das. We'll talk about that another time. The, the appearance, though, that's a simplicity. It's not, it's a simplism. That's not true in the literal sense of the word. Parents have an obligation to raise their children. When they reach the age of maturity, they'll be able to do mitzvahs. Go ahead. The pillow. Doesn't the, um, the animals also have kachmah behedaz? Yes, we'll get to that soon. One at a time. So the divine soul's attitude is, I'm going to use my brain to teach my heart, to be moilech, the king over my heart. So it's not enough to use the Chochmah and Bini, you have to pass through Das. Now the tricky thing is, you could skip Das. You know, it's like the person who's been given an exercise to do an algebra problem, and he doesn't want to do the steps, he just figures it out, and the teacher writes in small print, show your work. <laughs> That's Das. It has to be real. Because if you skip Das, you can get excited emotionally, but it's like burning a piece of paper. It has no power. For it to have power, it has to burn not just wood, but coal. That depth requires that you slow down to make sure that it passes through the tool of das, that God stops being a concept and God becomes real. That I should actually fear God rather than pontificate about fear of God. It should be a real thing. So the first interesting component of this process is that the godly soul who strong houses the brain uses his chokhmah and his bina, and insists on using das, so there should be depth and integrity and power to his emotions, to develop feelings in his heart. The second interesting thing that Rebbe describes is that the heart has a right ventricle and a left ventricle. And according to Teda, the, the right ventricle of the heart is considered empty. Now, it's never empty. There's always blood in the right ventricle of the heart. But the point of the right ventricle of the heart is not about the blood, it's about the oxygenation of the blood. The left ventricle of the heart is about pumping the blood to the whole body. So according to Torah, the left side of the heart is considered the seat of the blood. The right side of the heart is considered empty. So the first place, the godly soul, which is the influence, is the right side of the heart, which are the finer emotions. Because according to Torah, the godly soul is in the brain and also the right side of the heart. That's the chap. The animal soul is in the blood, in the left side of the heart. And the right side of the heart, proverbially, metaphysically, has no blood, there's no pa- it's a quiet, it was a deeper kind of an emotion. And the brain, the, the godly soul, after being careful to guarantee that its meditation involves das, depth, wants to develop emotional feelings in the right side of the heart, and that it should spill over from the right side of the heart into the left side of the heart, and from the left side of the heart to the whole person. Is Which spiritual? This is emotion, intellectual and emotional. I don't think it's, I think it's very practical. I don't know if we can identify the steps so clinically because we're not that sophisticated. But technically, it's actually steps. Do you see the advantage that it should go from Chochmah to Bina? It should insist. It's to go into the right side of the heart and then spill over from the right side of the heart into the left side of the heart. But that's Das? No. Das is still part of the intellectual process that what I understand the emotions come after das correct okay 
The difference between the right side of the heart and the left side of the heart are the nature of the emotions. The emotions in the right side of the heart are quiet and deep. The emotions in the left side of the heart are animalistic. They're loud and dramatic and dynamic. They're very excited. They're very combustible. Because when the emotions spill over from the right side of the heart to the left side of the heart, you just met the animal. And if you're going to convince the animal that it's a good idea to serve God, he's not going to become human. He's going to serve God like an animal. And animals are excited. So the process is, the, the godly soul's interest is that it should start off creative intellect, thorough intellect, depth, integrity, das, to spill over from the right side of the heart into the left side of the heart and eventually to spill over to the whole person. We're going to go on to that a little bit later, Mitzvah, in the class. And of course the bottom line is, Al-Fadabi says it in Tanya in many places, we do not act based on what we know. Even though it would be nice if we did and even though we continue saying that we do. We act based on what we feel, our impulses, our emotional forces. And that's why it's not enough to intellectually know God, you have to know God in your heart. Because you will serve God if you feel God. You'll never serve God because you intellectually understand Him. And this is what the godly soul understands. I have to conquer the city. If I'm going to conquer the city, I've got to conquer the heart. And I have to, yes, I have to conquer the animal soul as well. Now here's the thing. If I needed to describe to you my own words, what's the difference between the right side of the heart and the left side of the heart, I would give you a simple analogy. What's the difference between the fire that burnt on the Menorah in the Beis HaMikdash and the fire that burnt on the Mizbeach in the Beis HaMikdash? The fire... Pardon? They both lasted forever to some degree. The difference is the fire that burnt on the Menorah was the most beautiful and most peaceful fire in the world. Because you're burning olive oil. Olive oil wants to burn. The fire of the Mizbeach was so dynamic and so combative because two forces that are totally opposite are meeting. Fire and moisture. Fresh meat. Fresh meat is what, 60% water? And wood also has moisture in it. And as a result, the fire of the Mizbeach was much, much more dramatic because there's a war. So the Alter Rebbe says that the approach of the godly soul is Chochmah, Bina, Das, right side of the heart would be a quiet fire because you're burning the olive oil, the Neshama. But it's not enough. It has to spill over to the left side of the heart. The animal has to agree. And if the animal has to agree, those emotions must become pronounced. They must become loud and dramatic and expressed. And I'm going to give you a Pashas a, 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 a Hashavua relevance. This week, is we read Pashas Zohar, we read about the erasure of Amalek. Remember Amalek? You're supposed to remember Amalek. One of the ideas that says in Hasidus about Amalek is Rasher Korcha. Amalek's whole MO is to cool you off. Don't get excited. Relax. Relax, don't get excited. So there's Maimari Hasidus and Hasidic discourses, there's discussions about what Amalek interest is. And one of the things that says in many Maimari Hasidus is, well, what is he getting so excited about God? Yeah, we all know there's a God. Relax. You must get excited about God. Why? Because you're an animal. I'm an animal. Animals don't react to ideas. They need energy. In other words, in Yiddishkeit, it's actually necessary to become 
aroused emotionally in, an, in a pronounced way. You'll see later on. If you're a perfect tzaddik, you don't need that. But for regular people, who's, who are, you know, our MO is, our very definition is distraction and scatterbrain and here, there, and everywhere. If we don't actually get demonstratively passionate about Hashem, we're not touching the animal soul. And if we're not touching the animal soul, we're not conquering the city. We're bypassing him. And if you don't conquer the animal soul, he'll make his appearance. He's going to wait for you to finish praying and then he's going to pray on you. So therefore, the approach has to be, it's, it has to spill over from the right side of the heart into the left side of the heart because you want to get so excited that it should affect your behavior. And the animal soul's excitement has to be loud and pronounced and demonstrative and that affects how we live. And this is the this is the priority, this is the attitude, this is the mindset, this is the perspective of the godly soul. Now we're not done yet, but this is a part of it. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, you mentioned these emotions on the right side of the heart. Can you name those? Name the same them? emotions. They're just deeper emotions. But they're not anger. It's not, it's not anger. It must be... It's love, it's joy, it's respect, it's awe. But it's all deep. Right. They're almost right. intellectual type emotions. Right. Spilling those emotions over into the animal side of the heart is cheapening them. It's diminishing them. But you have to do that. Right. The Alter says, uh, some, just a, a simple thought, he says there's love and fear and beauty. Chesed, Yivur, and Tferes. The emotion of love, in other words, you, you know, the whole process, Chochma, Bina, Das, right side, left side, love is I want to be connected. Love, the root of the word love is I desire. I want to be close to God. Love means I, I want. And as a rule, I want means I don't yet have. I'd like to acquire. Fear means A, I'm afraid of being separated from or B, I'm awed by. I'm afraid to get close to. What is the emotion of Tiferes? The only place in Tanya you have this idea. The emotion of Tiferes is Joy. Love means I want a connection to God. Fear means I'm so awed by Hashem, I'm afraid to get close, I'm afraid to lose my connection. Tiferes is joy. You know what joy, the joy is from? From having a connection. Love wants, fear is afraid of losing. Tiferes is called When you're tuned in, when you're really locked in, you actually feel connected to the Ebishter. And it gives you happiness. For what? Yira and Tiferes. Chesed, Tiferes is Simcha. Gevura. Chesed is Ahava. Kindness is love. Severity, exactness is fear. And beauty is fear, Yira. And Tiferes is Simcha. Because Tiferes is the middle. In other words, it's not wanting something, it's actually having it and the joy of having it. This is the godly soul's approach we're not done yet with the godly soul. We will revisit him later on, but we've given him his due. And maybe more than his due. Now let's talk about the animal soul. The animal soul is in the heart. And the animal soul doesn't think in details. The animal soul thinks in waves, in fantasies, in very powerful emotional thrusts. So the animal soul doesn't analyze things in nuance. Animal soul just emotionally reacts. I want this, I want that. I'm lazy to do that. I don't want to do that. I'm not in the mood of it. See, but the animal soul is no fool. 
The animal soul knows he has a brain. In other words, he's not a chicken. He's not a polar bear. He's not even a, a, a dolphin or an elephant or a great ape. He's a human being. And therefore, he has a mind. And the animal soul is a completely different interest. And the interest of the animal soul is to use his mind for his own ends. In other words, the emotions of the person don't care about the truth. The emotions of the person don't care about what's sublime and what's transcendent. The emotions of the person are not necessarily evil. Not bad. Just animalistic. Any ch chickens ever bother anybody? They're harmless. But they're animals. Animals means their entire world revolves around themselves and their entire world revolves around their needs, their selfish interests. There's no going past that. So the animal soul is not a bad guy. He's an animal. But we consider that bad. To be completely involved with yourself. Animal has a negative connotation. Right. But it's, what I'm trying to communicate is it doesn't have an evil connotation. But it sounds like it does. That's it, it's meant to. Because it's true. It's not in the service of God. It's in the service of self. But service of self in the social setting, it, it's, it's exactly what it is. It's nature. In the world, go out in the street and say, I serve myself, and I'll say, good, you're a good capitalist. <laughs> That's exactly what capitalism is. It's institutionalized selfishness, and guess what? Capitalism and its selfishness has turned out to be kinder than socialism and its idealism. We've figured out how to make selfish kind and... The, you know, the social experiment to, of, of being an idealist and living for other people created the worst tyrant in the history of humankind. So the selfishness has a silver lining. It's still not serving God. It's still serving self. What I'm trying to communicate to you is, yes, it's not Kedusha, it's Kleber. Okay. But it's not the bottom of the barrel. It's not the Ra. It's Behemoth, but it's not a Tefer for Behemoth. It's a Kosher Behemoth. And the animal knows that the brain is a great, great resource. Why? Because the brain is pretty smart. And the brain is going to be able to be utilized to acquire its animal desires in a way that the animal by itself could never. How do chickens live and how do human beings live? Chickens don't live in coops unless we build them. <laughs> chickens live in jungles. In other words, the human being's mind permits us to be creative and to be ingenious and to think about progress to enhance the pursuit of our animal desires. So the animal wants to harness the mind, but he doesn't want to allow the mind to operate separate from the animal. In other words, yes, he wants to use the brain, but the brain should be the servant of the mind, the heart, rather than the other way around. The godly soul's priority is the brain should teach the heart that the heart should get excited about what the brain understands. And not just the so-called right side of the brain, but the left side of the brain as well. The animal soul, whose strong house, whose center, whose source of power is in the heart, wants to dominate the person, the first place he looks is up. I want to use that brain. I want to pick that brain. Why? Because the brain is going to actually enhance my animalism. As I explained to you the other day, the brain by itself does not have a conscience. People do. We talked about this in one of the most recent classes. This is why you can intellectually rationalize almost anything. 
The Rebbe used to always give the example of the Nazis, who during the war had incredibly strict laws against cruelty to animals on the books. And they punished people for being cruel to animals while they were systematically killing millions and millions of people. Because the human mind has no conscience. He has no sense of right and wrong. People have a conscience. The godly soul which sits in the brain is not just a brain, it's a conscience. And I suppose you could best focus on the conscience of the godly soul when you talk about Das, more than Chochmah Abina. The animal soul wants to use the brain, but for its purposes. It can rationalize, it can justify, it can explain, it can argue, it can prove, it can insist on the most subjective truths. You know the famous story about a guy who goes to a shooting range. I told this to you the other day. And he sees a whole bunch of people shooting arrows at targets. And some people are better and some people are worse. Some people hit closer to the center. One guy, every single arrow is right in the center of the target. And how do you get so good? He says, it's very simple. After I shoot the arrow, I draw the circle around it. That's what the animal soul wants. That what it wants, the brain is going to pursue. In other words, it's taking away from the brain its greatest strength, which is its ability to find truth. But it's utilizing the brain to enhance its animal possibility, its animal prospects. There's an incredible fight. The animal soul whose center is the heart, and as I'm trying to describe it to you, the heart does not operate in details and in nuance, but in waves, and these huge thrusts, these, these passions, these strong emotions. And he wants to use the brain to explain those emotions, to justify those emotions, and to bring to realization, to bring into reality whatever those emotions want. So the godly soul wants to use the heart also even though it seats in the mind. The animal soul wants to use the mind also, though it seats in the left side of the heart. But their entire structure, their entire model is diametrically opposite. The godly soul wants the heart to learn what the brain understands, at least a little bit. And the animal wants to subjectify. He wants to compromise, he wants to take away from the mind, the mind's potential for the pursuit of truth, and make it into a servant of its selfish interests. So there is, as you put it, a war. And that's what chapter 9 is describing, this battle. There are two souls occupying the same city, shooting at each other across Vesach. There's this collateral damage in the innocent women and children. <laughs> you can explain each one of these aspects in terms of life, the mistakes that we make, and so forth and so on. But each one understands one thing. There will be no negotiated peace. One is going to win and one is going to lose. The godly soul wants the mind to dominate and he insists that the animal should get excited about God also. The animal soul wants the heart to dominate and insists to take away from the mind its objectivity so that the mind should become a servant of the heart's interests. So that you decide uh, what's true even though it doesn't make any sense at all and then you, you come up with all kinds of convoluted logic to qualify it. You know, in history, there have been many people who've decided that this is reality. But they didn't decide this reality because they were smart people. They decided this reality because they were strong people, tyrants. And then they called in their intelligentsia and says, you will prove that this is true. But it isn't. Bang, bang, bang. Somebody else will prove it. If you try hard enough, you can explain almost anything. But that's not the real use of the mind. The real use of the mind has to be free of that restraint or constraint. And that's the heart's priority, that the mind should be used to serve its 
emotional, it's subjective, it's selfish interest, and not the other way around. So the heart wants to dominate the person. The brain should make us a super animal. Because the mind allows us to eat better food, to live in nicer homes, to drive fancier cars, and to wear better clothing, or to express evil and cruelty that the most evil and cruel animal would never even entertain. Because that's what the brain's capacity is. It can out-animal the animal. If the brain becomes the servant of the heart, the brain becomes the, the super heart. The emotions can allow you to kill 10 people. Your brain can teach you how to kill 6 million. If the brain is the servant of the heart rather than the other way around. And this is the war which takes place in each one of us. The godly soul wants to win. Winning means that it should go from the brain to the heart. The heart should feel in its animal plane what the brain understands. And when we feel that way, we act accordingly. And the heart wishes, the animal soul wishes, to subjectify the brain and to exploit the brain and its superior creativity and superior explanatory gifts or powers and possibilities to justify uh, animalism and to live accordingly. No, evil means to hurt people. No, killing six million. Fine, okay, that's an extreme example. It doesn't necessarily have to be that. Your point is well taken. What would be something else that's not evil there? Would it be like eating um, milk right after meat? Yeah, it's a funny example because it's not emotional. Right. Again, the best example that I would give is... um, is selfishness Spending money. and materialism. A life which is defined by things rather than by ideas. Right? You can use your brain to say, listen, I'm, I'm a great guy. I made a lot of money. I want to enjoy my life. And you're compromising yourself because when you live for things, you become less of a human being. Exactly what it is. Right? We're using the words of animal soul and godly soul. It, really it, is. it is. The Yetzirah and the Yetzirah are the emotions of the respective souls. Nefeshalakis and Nefeshalakis means the brains of the two souls and Yetzirah and Yetzirah are the emotions, the hearts of the two souls. That's how it's explained. It's and Meaningful. Right. Short-sighted, immediate gratification versus real quality of life which ultimately requires a higher purpose and the connection to Hashem. And ultimately, right, and ultimately service. The greatest freedom a human being can have is to be the servant of God. It's a core teaching of Torah. Not just on a religious level, but on a psychological level, on a human level. So there's a war. And this is the fight. The brain wants to dominate the heart. The heart wants to objectify the brain. And must I explain it, or do we all need just to look in the mirror? I know for me, there's no explanation necessary. Because in one day, I can see so back and forth between these two points of view. This is life. Life is this war. Are we going to use our minds? And of course, the cop is, the mind should really win every time. Because he's right. But it's hard. And that's what it's about. Am I going to push myself to give dominance to the quiet, whispering, ideal truth? Am I going to give in to that impulsive wave of emotions and desire and temptation and laziness and 
conformism, being with everybody else. It's an incredibly realistic war. And the Altarebbe says this is the battle. Now, remember the context. In the Tzaddik, the battle has been won. In the Bainani, the battle rages. But the animal soul never wins in terms of practice. They fight, they punch each other, right? The godly soul punches the animal soul. In other words, the mind spills over to the left side of the heart and the heart punches the mind back. The measure in the Bainani, what did you do? And the Russia loses, even if only once. But this is the this is the structure of this Padic, this war between these two souls. Go ahead. So I don't know if it's uh, would helping us win that battle of the mind over our animal soul, like it says in Mutarakilegulam, by learning, which is feeding the brain, does that give us more power to defeat our animal soul? You must understand the problem with only learning Torah. Not only that you can't do it 24 hours a day. If you could, it's not a bad solution. But you must remember that it's not enough to understand in the brain. It has to be das. So when you're learning Torah, you're understanding Hashem's wisdom intellectually. To connect to Hashem, you have to have a specific type of learning. And that's Hasidus. Because Hasidus talks about God. It doesn't talk about the laws of Shabbos and the laws of kosher, which are incredibly important. But this idea to empower the brain to defeat our heart means to connect the brain to God. And if you have to study God, you don't study God, the Masech the Shabbos, or Masech the Erevin, or Masech the Shkolem, or Masech the Brachas. But don't you, like there's stories about Hashem and... Not enough. Not and certainly not enough... To feed the brain. To feed the brain. Because you have to study Pnimis HaTeda, those parts of the Teda that deal directly with God. So that's the time that's what he's doing, he's trying to give us the strength to... Yes, and practice. the key is that the hard part is, das is a tricky one. How to acquire das. Yeah, yeah. Ha, ha, not to be lazy. Can you tell us how to do Again, we talked about it before. The, the key is to be persistent, to think about Hashem for long periods of time. Not to say, okay, I thought for five minutes, I can eat chips. To really lock in. <laughs> and... Um, it, it's very difficult to know whether you've touched the Das nerve or you're still just on the Bina trip. And if you don't touch the Das nerve, there's going to be no integrity, no power to those emotions. So Das is the hard thing. Really, that's what the struggle is. Now, but, yes, ma'am. So based on what you just said, what is um, all that, like, halacha and everything in terms of Chachma and Bina and Das? What is it? Well, there, it's Chachma and Bina. There's creativity involved. There's understanding involved. The das, as far as that's concerned, is really the Yerat Hashem. Because I read in Shulchan Aruch that I'm not allowed to do this, I'm afraid to do it. Because of Shulchan Aruch, I must do this. I am insistent on doing it. Because what das does is it makes God real, and therefore the commandments relevant. And you don't get that simply from learning the commandments. Yeah, because then if you understand it, then you're not like understanding what's behind it. You want to know the laws... And know the giver of those laws, yeah. the seriousness of those laws. That little spice of das, Yiras Hashem, the Gemara calls it Kav Chumten. The Gemara says if you have a whole silo full of wheat, but you don't have Kav, a small, small measure of preservative, it's going to rot. If you have a small supply of wheat, but you have the preservative, it'll last all winter. So all the Taira is like the supply of wheat, the Yiras Hashem is the Kav Chumten. And that's the das. Chumten is some kind of a preservative. 
through, the, through thinking about the Ebushter. It teaches you about Hashem. That's what it does. Thinking about Hashem or it tells you what to think. Yeah, both. Both. The Torah has many parts. There's only one Torah. <laughs> Torah has sections. Right. If you want to learn the laws of kosher, you don't open up a Masech Shabbos. You open up a Masech Chulim. That's just the way it is. You can open up, you know what I'm saying? Yes. You want to learn the laws of Shabbos, you don't open up the Masech Psachim. You open up Masech Shabbos. If you want to learn about Hashem, you have to not Masech Hashem. Where is it? It's primarily in Pnimiya Sateya. Now, there are a few... There are a few final thoughts that I want to share with you. So I said, I, I've been giving you the idea. You get the picture, right? Now, we haven't solved anything. We've just been honest. <laughs> and now we can go home and be uncomfortable. So what's new? Right, we see the reality of our lives in front of us, and we all know it. And we didn't need the Tanya to teach it to us, but the Tanya has put it into a form. Everything has a place and an explanation. There are several afterthoughts, several final thoughts that I need to share with you in this uh, chapter. The first is this. This chapter 9, which like I said to you in the beginning, I think it's one of the most important chapters of the Tanya. And you see why. All, everything we learned for the last five weeks had just come home to roost. Animal, God, you know, Pnimi, Teva, Animal, Adam, Behemoth, it's all come together tonight. In spite of that, there's something about chapter 9 that's a little bit unusual. A little bit unusual because it's not really entirely practical for the ordinary person. And that is when the Alter Rebbe discusses the godly soul's interest. What does the godly soul want to do? Chochma, Bina, Das. Right side of the heart, left side of the heart to spill over to the whole person. It's a very idealistic vision of conquering the animal soul. Very, very idealistic. You study about Hashem. You think about it. You make sure to develop a depth and an integrity about that understanding. You get emotional about it in a quiet and in a deep way. Then you force yourself to experience loud external emotions which affect your behavior. He says this would be called a top-down approach. Starting from the highest level and going into the lowest level. The reality is that it doesn't really work that well. To actually follow this pattern of starting with Chochmah, then Bina, then Das, then the right side of the heart, then the left side of the heart, spilling over into the person, is sort of taking for granted that the animal soul is going to cooperate. And she has no interest in cooperating. She has her own program. She's fighting her own, she's paying her own offensive. She's sitting in her own war room planning her strategy. You understand? So the idea that because intellectual I understand something and then because I'm going to meditate it until I develop a certain depth about it and I'm going to get emotional on this quiet and deep level and then I'm going to force myself to, to compromise those emotions to be loud and noisy and external so the animal should love God also it's not so simple. But it's the model the Alter Rebbe describes. And perhaps the Alter Rebbe describes this model because he's talking about someone who never sinned. 
If you've never sinned, this may be theoretically possible. To go from the top down, from the godly to the animal, from the brain to the heart, and from the heart to the action. The reality for me and for you, for most of us is, that for us to even begin to win this war, there's another requirement. That's not mentioned in this chapter at all. It's mentioned in chapter 27 in the Tanya. It's not mentioned in the chapter at all. And that requirement is Iskafia. Iskafia means Aleph, Sof, Chof, Pei, Yud, Aleph. It's an Aramaic word. The root of the word is Kofet, to force, to, to harness, to discipline, to control. Iskafia basically means you've got to stop the animal. To fight with the animal, bend the animal. In other words, for this brain heart evolution to function effectively, you have to start up with the animal, with the poke at him. Practically, this means that you have to be kind of a person, if you really want to win, if you want the brain to win and the heart to lose, you have to harness the animal. How do you harness the animal? By not giving him what he wants. Even if it's kosher, even if it's permitted, even if it's okay. You have to fight with yourself. You can't just meditate and get excited and get so excited that you'll be a good person. It's just not the way it works. Because the animal's too strong. The reality of life is that in order for your meditation to work properly, the animal has to have been softened up beforehand. You know, when you before you send in the ground troops. You have to soften up the territory. That means kill a lot of people with bombs. That's the real way to say it. You have to soften up the animal. You soften up the animal by telling the animal no. There's an expression in the Chabad Hasidic culture called bitla taiva. To break your tendency towards temptation. Not not to give in to temptation. To break your whole system of desire. And the way one breaks their whole system of desire is by not giving in. In Chabad, in Avodah Hashem, Iskafia means, I like vanilla, I'm going to have chocolate. I'm going to force myself not to give myself what I want as a means of weakening the animal. Because if the animal is in full force, this idea that you're going to sit and meditate and inspire the animal to love God, it's simply not so realistic. Al-Trebbe uses this model. And again, I'm proposing that perhaps the reason he does is because the Al-Trebbe is talking about a person who's never sinned. If you've never sinned, you can afford to go from the mind to the heart to the action. But to be realistic, this model can only work if you do something, this will be a requisite. The idea that I'm going to sit and study God and think about it and develop das and right side, left side action for it to, set, to be so neat and so clinical I am going to have to first of all soften up my heart. And you soften up your heart by telling yourself you want it, you can't have it. Yeah, but it's kosher. It's permitted. And isn't it true that you're supposed to be as lenient as possible? The rabbi is supposed to be lenient. You're not supposed to be lenient. You have to discipline yourself. You have to become a dis all the time. You become a disciplined person by not allowing yourself things. And the more you allow yourself things, the less discipline you have, and the less effective the meditation will be. 
You know, Baruch Hashem in America, our biggest problem is that we have almost no discipline. Why should we? Life is terrific. <laughs> Jews haven't had it this good in 2,000 years. But this is the test. We're weak. Because we're indulgent. And we're not talking about Aleinus. It's kosher and it's glad kosher and it's mahadin and the mahadin. It's chasidish ashkita. Even the milk is glad kosher. How could milk be glad kosher is another question. It's as kosher as could be. So why not have two? You're right. We can live. We can all be overweight. It's a great life. But it doesn't discipline us. And to be a real servant of Hashem, we have to be disciplined. And to be disciplined personally, it's not only about saying, this is not good, I won't have it. This is good and I'm not going to have it. Because I want to gain mastery of myself so that when I use my mind to inspire my heart, it'll be effective. This is the uncomfortable part because we don't want to do that. We want to have whatever we want, when we want it, how we want And usually it's N-O-W. Now. National Organization for Women is another abbreviation, but now. This minute. And although the Altarebbe does not say it in this Patek, the Altarebbe gives us a description that sounds very, very ideal. And it seems too easy to be true. And it's not, it's not so easy. I'm telling you that the effectiveness of this mind ruling over the heart is only possible if we soften up the animal. And you soften up the animal by telling the animal no. And the animal says, why not? It's kosher. And the, animal is, the answer is because you don't need it. Because you desire it. So why shouldn't I have it? It's America. I'm entitled. I worked fair and square. You're right. But we want to become people. We want to be strong. And the way to become a person, to be strong, is to discipline oneself. Which means not to give in to ourselves. About things that are completely legitimate. How do you do that in a practical way without being extreme and then not doing it? In other words, there has to be a step-by-step process where you practice this discipline. So the answer, of course, to that is every person is different. Every person is different. Right. You know, like going on a diet, and says, okay, I'm not going to touch any cake. So they say, okay, and then the next day... They had two pieces of cake. The first piece of cake and the second piece of cake because they felt guilty about the first piece and the second piece made them feel good about that guilt. And they have a third piece and then they're disgusted. <laughs> and they have a fourth piece and they get rid of that disgust and don't, let's not continue after that. This Tanya, this chapter 9, is describing the war between the godless soul and the animal soul, as we discussed it tonight. And it describes the idea, it starts in Chochmah, goes to Bina, it has to slow down and das and really take it in, you know. And then it can go to the right side of the heart, the left side of the heart, and it affects the person practically. But there's a subplot to this chapter. And the subplot to this chapter is a description, really, that has nothing to do with the world of Benini. It actually is describing the evolution from Benini to Tzadik to perfect Tzadik. In other words, this chapter 9, tangentially, incidentally, describes the evolution of a perfect person. Now, the book of Tanya is not made for perfects. It's made for intermediates. But woven into the fabric of this chapter 9, if you read between the lines, is a, is a subtle insight into the process by which one goes from Benini to Tzadik, Tzadik Gomer. And I'm going to describe it to you using a simple uh, physical uh, form. 
Imagine you're taking a hike, you're taking a walk, and you're carrying on your back 40 pounds of, of rocks. So you're walking. But then you come to a mountain, you have to climb. There's no way in the world you can climb unless you, you, have to, you, have to get, you have to let go of that pack. You can't climb. And then imagine if you have to fly. It's impossible. The weight is too heavy. It holds you down. You have to free yourself. You have to rid yourself of that burden. You see, the animal soul, even when the animal serves God, it's like schlepping along a behemoth. Imagine you come to shul every day with a chicken. Every day you come to shul with a goat. You bring the goat, that you really are coming to shul every day with a goat. The goat is on the left side of your heart. Try to visualize this. Imagine you are coming to shul and bringing an animal with you. And you want to daven, and the animal's rubbing up against your leg and says, I want to have hay. Now that's a great distraction. And your job is to pray so good that the animal should stop bothering you about the hay. Or you should stop noticing that the animal wants hay and convince the animal he should sit quietly and wait till you finish praying. It's an, it's, it's an incredible distraction from davening. See, even if you daven well, it's a, it's a certain quality, a certain depth, a certain subtlety, which simply the animal's not, not going to let you experience it. It's, it's like carrying around dead weight. And the dead weight prevents you from flying. It prevents you from transcending. It prevents you going on to the next level. You all understand that, right? Now what is it practically? What is it practically? You know what it is practically? Emotion. Emotion is a great strength and an emotion is a very, very great limitation. The animal soul is very emotional. He's very, very loud. Excited. That's a good thing. That loudness, that excitement gives him power over you in the real world. But it's not very sophisticated. Noise, dynamism, loudness is energy. But it's not efficient energy. It's just force. It's just, it's just, it's just a lot of power, much of which is, not, is wasted. None of it is really focused just a force right what's the difference between an ordinary force and a, and, a, and, a, and a laser and a focus force right it's all about the concentration the animals emotions are not concentrated they're just wild so you're serving Hashem with your animal soul which means to say you must arouse external passions which are going to get you to serve Hashem those external passions which got you to serve Hashem are actually the limitation. They're the inhibitor of your ability to serve Hashem. How close can you get to God when you're making so much noise? It's like a bull in a china shop. You're not deep. So the Alter Rebbe describes, in effect, three steps. The first step is called Ava Kiddush Bayesh. Fire. Love, like fire attached to a coal. It's very loud, very dynamic, very dramatic. That's what a Benyani does. He makes his heart get excited about what the brain understands. But that excitement, which makes him serve Hashem, eventually becomes his limit. If you serve Hashem because you get emotionally aroused in a very, very external way, so you're serving Hashem, you're not sinning, but there's not much depth. What if you want to climb a cliff? What if you want to fly? Proverbially, that means, what if you want to have a deeper connection to Hashem? a finer connection to Hashem, 
That emotion is the wall between you and a deeper connection to the Abishta. So when a person evolves from Benini to Tzaddik, what are they doing? They're killing the animal. A Benini is not killing the animal. He's using the animal. Right? The ordinary Jew who has an animal soul is using the animal soul. When you're using the animal soul, the good becomes the bad. The strength becomes a limit. Because the animal soul requires you to be passionate in your service of Hashem, that passion limits the degree of depth you can have. And if you're going to not use the animal soul, you're going to end up on the sidewalk. You have to use the animal soul. It's the only way to fight him. You have to incorporate him. You have to bring the goat into the shtibu. You leave him outside, he's going to eat up all the hedges. <laughs> he's going to make trouble. But it's the animal which you're including in your Abayas Hashem, which actually limits. A person who... who must get very excited about Hashem to stay above water, not to do any Avedis, that excitement takes away the possibility of being deeper. So there's three steps. This is how I understand this painting. Ava Kiddush Bayesh is the Benini. The strength becomes the weakness. All that emotion limits. And the Tzaddik is called Ahava Rabbe, infinite love. To love God infinitely. Infinite love cannot be unless the animal's been slaughtered. Infinite love, you know what it's like? Make a campfire, and put a bunch of logs, right? It's a big flame, with a lot of flames, and a lot of smoke, and it's cracking, and it's popping, and it's whistling, and it's whizzing, and then after a few hours, what happens? The logs are all gone, and you have embers, just glowing pieces of carbon, it's so hot. It's so peaceful. It's so quiet. Because the moisture has completely been removed. All you have is fuel. It's almost like burning coal. That's called Avarabe. Avarabe is a level of tzaddik. It's not a level of Bainani. And the Bainani who's busy arousing the external emotions of the animal soul because that's the only way to serve Hashem, that employing of the animal soul's passions to serve Hashem and to vent oneself from sinning becomes the obstacle. It's what holds the Abenini back. And if the Abenini gets smart and circumvents the animal soul, says, forget the animal soul, I'm just going to serve God with my brain, he's going to end up actually sinning. The Abenini has to remember. You want to conquer the city? You have to pass through the heart. Yeah, but the heart's going to hold me back. That's the only way it goes. The tzaddik has been granted a special possibility by Hashem to kill the animal soul. The animal soul should actually get quiet. And quiet doesn't mean that he's no longer functioning. Quiet doesn't mean that he's temporarily out of the loop. Because if quiet means he's temporarily out of the loop, he'll be back tomorrow and with a vengeance. Quiet means you've actually killed him. And in killing the animal soul itself, there's two levels. What we would call the imperfect tzaddik and the perfect tzaddik. And in the model of the Tanya here, again, this is my interpretation of it, this is called Avaraba, infinite love, and Avaraba the love of pleasure, the love of actually having God. The imperfect tzaddik has killed his animal soul. It means to say he doesn't have to worry that the passions of the animal soul are going to go off tomorrow and look for an ice cream shop. But the animal soul is a dead animal. It's no longer bothering him. But he'd still wait. He's still a distraction. It's still heaviness. 
A perfect tzaddik has not only killed his animal soul, the animal soul has become human. The animal soul has become a collaborator with the godly soul. And in the perfect tzaddik, it's not only that the animalism, the external passions of the animal, are not burdening him and weighing him down, they actually add to the focus and to the depth. So the irony is, the holier you are, the quieter your service. The imperfect tzaddik serves Hashem with a lot of excitement, but it has more depth. It's not so superficial. And the perfect tzaddik is shashtu. Completely quiet. Avakamayim is a love like water. Why? Because there's zero resistance. There's no friction. There's absolutely no obstacles whatsoever. It's not only there's a dead animal, there's no dead animal. There's two human beings. You think about wires that conduct electricity. Right? If the wires are very inefficient, they're made of, let's say, iron or metal of some sort, the wires get hot because the energy is wasted. It's inefficient. That's what the animal soul is. It's wasting energy. If you have a copper wire, right? Well, what do they call it now? Fiber optics, a glass wire. The efficiency is far greater, but there's still some heat. Some of it is lost, yeah? What if you have a wire made of gold fibers? It's cold as ice. Not because there's no energy, because the energy is completely focused on where it needs to go. And this is the evolution from And the irony is, the funny thing about it is, that it actually works in the reverse. You start out in the brain. You spill over to the right side of the heart. And insist, I must go into the left side of the heart. I must develop external emotions. My animal has to be excited by what I am excited about on his level. I don't want the animal to be quiet. I want the animal to make noise. But noise about God. This way I know that he's not going to lead me astray. And then you want to quiet the animal. Not quiet the animal by pushing him outside because then he's going to bother you on the street by killing him. And when the animal has been totally transformed, Al-Tarebbe describes a person who is Yiddishkeit is completely silent. Not because he lacks passion, because the energy is completely focused. Like I've shared with you in the past, that one of the Hasidim asked the Rebbe the Tzemach the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, when the sea split, what was Moses doing? When the sea split, what was Moses doing? According to Kabbalah, the moment of the sitting of the splee, the splitting of the sea, not the sitting of the splee, <laughs> uh, was almost as great a revelation of Mount Sinai itself. It was a convergence of the concealed world, the revealed world, the land and the sea in mystical terms. Are, wow, it's a great event. And Moshe was so tuned into it. He experienced the, you know, the, the fusion of different worlds of godliness. It all comes together in this great moment. Somebody asked the Tzadik, what was Moshe doing at that moment? He says, he went Kaltenbrand. Cold fire. He stood like a marble statue. And he was completely energized but showed no demonstration of that emotion. You know why? Why should he? The wire was 100% efficient. There was no need for external emotion because there was no conflict whatsoever in Moshe Rabbeinu to the revelation of godliness. The lesser Jews were all shaking like a leaf and the less they were, the noisier they were. In other words, if you look at tzaddik's prey, it's the biggest tzaddik who looks the least holy. Because he's the most connected. So on the outside, there's no need. The Benini must get excited. The Tzaddik has graduated from that. Go ahead. You, know, you mentioned the, uh, the, the, the 
the perfect tzaddik and the incomplete tzaddik, right? right? How, how do you go from killing your nefesh of Bahamas to it becoming, from that state, to it becoming a, a collaborator with you? Okay, it's a long, long story. It, 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 is it just happens to be that that's next class. Right. Chapter 10 is tzaddik. Now, I just want to warn you that when we finish discussing chapter 10, don't think you will have understood what Sadiqim do. I'm just giving you a heads up. <laughs> but I, I just want to remind you, next week is Purim. So we'll meet in two weeks from tonight. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, you mentioned um, that Nefesh Bahamas is infinite, and yet, and yet it seems like the emotions that you, you, you use... But it's a simple infinity. It's a raw infinity. It's a sheer, it's a power infinity. It's not a focused infinity. But it's still limiting then. What's limiting about it is that it's underdeveloped. It has no sophistication. In other words, in a world of infinity, the animal soul is fine. But in a world of details, the animal soul just breaks. It's a wave. We know Akhenaten is the Nefesh Bahamas. But Rabba was wrong. The question that Tanya is not whether Rabba was right or wrong, the question is how Rabba made such a mistake. Okay. And of course the answer is because Abedini means someone who never sinned, but could. Okay, so my question here is we're learning all about the tzaddik and the perfect tzaddik, but we... Can I make it... We're learning all? I spent about six minutes on right, it. No, no, no. <laughs> we're here an hour and 15 minutes. It's the last five minutes we're talking about this. Yeah, the the, the, the Bahatan is teaching us about a perfect tzaddik and an imperfect tzaddik how us understanding about Sadiqin, how does that affect our service of Hashem? Okay, we'll talk about that next time. Okay, fine. But this is tangential. I, this is just a, a note. Okay. I spent 55 minutes teaching the class and now I have three notes. And there's one final note. And this is the most interesting note of all. At the very end of the chapter, last two and a half lines, another, oh, by the way, the animal soul, he wants everything I just described backwards. Al-Tarebbe does not give the animal soul equal time. He was not for the fairness doctrine. Although this chapter is describing the war between the godly soul and the animal soul, he spends most of the chapter describing how the godly soul wants to use the brain to dominate the heart, and a very (laughs) small part of the chapter describing how the animal soul wants to conquer the godly soul. In other words, a lot of what I told you is not even written exclusively in the Tanya. He devotes to the animal soul two lines and a word. And even those two lines in the word, he doesn't keep for the animal soul alone. He says, the animal soul wants everything I just described in the godly soul in reverse. The heart should control the mind. Everything I told you, the subjectification and so forth and so on. And then he finishes with a few words. Why is the animal soul fighting with you? Doesn't he want you to serve God too? Isn't the animal soul a creation of God? See, he says, in fact, the animal soul is fighting with you in the hope of reinforcing your connection to Hashem. The animal soul is praying to lose. So he gives him two lines and even kills those two lines. Says, the animal soul is fighting with you, not so that he should win, so that you should become stronger. And he brings the famous marshal from the Zoya. The Zoya tells a marshal about a prince, a crown prince who's destined to rule. And the king is, of course, very concerned. His son is growing up in the lap of luxury, spoiled. How do you develop character and principle and responsibility and commitment and loyalty when you've never lacked anything in this life? So he hires a special friend for this prince. And he pays this friend well. He says, your job is to make my son slip. 
And this special friend says, why would you want me to make your son slip? Because I want to fortify him. I want to make him, I want to develop his character. He's not going to develop his character if he doesn't have to overcome his weaknesses. He says, you mean you want me to make him slip? And the worst thing that can happen is that he should actually slip. And King says, you got it. But you have to make him slip. So the animal soul is trying to get the Yetzirah, the person to sin. And he does it. No Yetzirah has ever been accused <laughs> of not delivering the best effort possible and is praying she loses. Because her entire purpose is not to get us to sin, but to get us not to sin, to strengthen us. Because this is what the Yetzirah wants. This is how chapter 9 finishes. Okay, and next time it's Hashem will do chapter 10, which is Tzadik. And the time after that, we'll do chapter 11, which is Drasha. And then we'll finally get to the Bainini.